Hey, Parkview, uh, welcome, glad you're here. My uh, friend this, uh, this weekend is Cal Jernigan, preaches at a, a church of about nine or 10,000 in the Phoenix area. We've been friends since youth ministry days, way back in the, back in the day, uh, vacation together, went to the Holy Land together, I mean, all that kind of stuff. Really, really good friend. Um, and I'm hoping that, like it's snowing, this weekend or something. I mean, you know I'm doing this ahead of time, right? I'm hoping that there's some, there's some reason why it's a, 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 not a wonderful experience for Cal because the only time I've ever spoken for Cal was in 2005. I went and did a men's retreat for him and it was the entire last three games of the World Series in 2005. And we were so far away, there wasn't even internet. I couldn't even watch the Sox win the World Series. The final game, I was on the plane on the way home, and I missed the whole thing. So uh, it's payback time for Cal. So you guys be mean to him, do something. Um, but in the meantime, welcome him. Let's welcome my friend Cal Jernigan. All right. Wow. Yeah. Never, uh, never quite had an introduction like that. I've told Tim it's just time to get over it. You know, just get over it. Let it go. I mean, it's not like the world, you know, like the White Sox haven't been in the World Series since. I mean, because seriously, he could be a Cubs fan. Do we have any Cubs fans? Okay, listen, listen, listen. Now listen, I want you to understand. Do you know where you do your winter training, your spring training? Where I'm from, in Mesa, Arizona, I share your pain, okay? So we're all on the same page. No, hey, I love this church. I have been a friend and a fan of this church for years, and uh, I, I love Tim. Tim is one of a kind, amen? There are not two Tims on this planet, thank God, thank God. No, I love that guy. I love doing life with him, and uh, he loves you. He talks about you all the time, and I, seriously, I, I love what God is doing in your midst, and I need you to know something. You are being talked about in all of the best places and all of the best ways. People are talking about what God's doing through you all, and you need to be proud of your church, and you just need to understand that God is was working here. And, and I wish that what God was doing here, God was doing everywhere. I wish every church was seeing the kind of success that you guys are seeing and if you'll allow me for just a moment, let me be negative for just a moment, because I want you to understand why you need to so deeply appreciate what God is doing in your midst. If you look around the country, um, the church is not in the best of shape right now. And again, let me be negative for just a few moments. Uh, they, there are somewhere, and they don't really know, but somewhere between 300,000 and 400,000 churches in America. And you go, how come they don't know? Because a lot of churches in America are house churches. They're just meeting and, in, 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 you know, they don't like report to anybody. But uh, of, the, of the 300 to 400,000 churches, every year, uh, just under 3,000 uh, go out of business. Now, how does a church go out of business? The church goes out of business by, um, they, well, they put a for sale sign up in front of their building and they close their doors and they don't meet together anymore because nobody shows up. And, and as they study churches in America, they've, they've figured out that about 85% of the churches in America have plateaued or are in, are in decline. And then only 10 to 15% of churches in America are like you all that are thriving and growing. And this ought to be a concern to all of us they have figured out that one-third of all the churches in America are just barely surviving, and that half of all the churches in America did not add a single person to their uh, attendance, not, not a single person, half the churches in America. The average church in America is under 100 people, and folks, it's not in great shape. And the reason this needs to concern us is because a church like yours 
sets a pattern for all the other churches to understand what's supposed to be happening. And, and, I, and I am so thrilled that you guys are doing what you're doing. I want to remind you of something that um, we, we all we all understand. Uh, it's the marching orders of Jesus Christ. It's what it seems like we have forgotten across America. And, and let me just read to you. You remember these words, the last words of Jesus recorded in the book of Matthew. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you know that the only institution that Jesus ever founded was this thing? The church. This is the only thing. Do you know that uh, this is the only institution on earth that exists for the sake of those who are not yet a part of it? You ever think about this? The, The only institution that exists for the sake of those who don't yet belong is the church. And Rick Warren has said that every church needs to ask itself two questions all the time. What business are we in and how's business? How are we doing? Well, the truth of the matter is, is that it seems like in America, the church is losing its passion. And and the reason I want to come here is because, again, I want to stir it up with you all, because I'm telling you, the more passionate you become, you will impact other churches in the Chicagoland area and around the world. And, And the truth of the matter is, is that passion Passion has to come deep from within you. Uh, in 1997, a, a world business leader died. Uh, uh, the guy was, his name was Roberto Goizuedo, and he was the uh, CEO of Coca-Cola. Before he died, two months before he died up in Chicago, he gave a speech at the executives club. And, and I want to tell you what he said in this speech. The CEO of Coca-Cola, here's his words. He said, a billion hours ago, human life appeared on earth. A billion minutes ago, Christianity emerged. A billion seconds ago, the Beatles performed on the Ed Sullivan Show. And a billion Coca-Colas ago was yesterday morning. And then he said this. He said, the question all of us are asking us around Coke today is what do we have to do to get a billion Coca-Colas ago to not be yesterday morning, but this morning ago? And then he said these words, listen carefully. He said, at the end of every day of every year, two things remain unshakable, our constancy of purpose and our continuous discontent with the immediate present. This guy was passionate about Coca-Cola, and then he died. I love Coke. I really do. I like Coke. But it's sugared water, and I couldn't get that passionate about it. But you know what you and I deal with? Real water, living water. The water that can quench the thirst of starving, dying people who are absolutely at the end of their selves. And that's the water that we get to deal with. You you know, most churches, seriously, and I hope you know this, and I tell you, I'm I'm not making this up, and I'm not blowing smoke at you. You guys are being watched. And there's lots of churches that were wishing that they had the kind of success that you guys are having. And they're trying to figure out what your formula is. What is it you're doing? Why is it that God seems to be blessing you all? But I want to challenge you to think about something that's not intuitive. Do you understand that you as a church are at risk in ways other churches are not? And and there's lots of risks you're facing, but I'm going to just point out two of them. Number one, you pose a threat to Satan that the church down the street doesn't. You pose a threat to Satan. Well, what are you talking about? When I was baptized, the guy that baptized me, the preacher who baptized me, as soon as I came up out of the water, he said something to me that I have never forgotten. And I'm not sure about the theology of this, but this is what he said. He said, Cal, I want you to understand something. If you're serious about this commitment, 
If you're not just playing a game and you really mean what you're doing right now, I want you to understand something. You're in trouble. And I'm like, what? And he said, yeah, every demon in hell is now going to target you. Because Satan knows that if you're serious about this commitment, not only is your life going to change, but God's going to use you to impact a bunch of people and a bunch of lives are going to change. So if you're serious, you be careful because he's going to gun you down. He's going to do everything he can do to gun you down. I've never forgotten that. But I want to tell you what, if that's true for me, think about you all. Think about a church like this making an impact like you're making, not just here, not just nationally, but around the world. You think he's going to just let you have a pass? Do you realize that every person that goes to a non-effective church that calls himself a Christian is no threat to Satan? In fact, I think, I think God wants, or Satan wants a bunch of people to claim that they follow God but do nothing. Because a, a, a person who says they follow God but isn't the least bit passionate about the relationship with God kind of serves Satan's cause. Because other people would meet them and go, oh, you're a Christian. Yeah, I know you're kind. And there'll be nothing to stir them up. But a church like yours, made up of people like you, oh, watch out. So that's one threat. Satan's after you. The second one, it's much more subtle. It's called drift, mission drift. Mission drift is when you started out and we we're all about this. This is why we meet. But as time passes, we became about that. We started about this, but we became about that. And we became so concerned about that, we've totally forgotten about this. And folks, this one is a serious threat to a church like you all. You, you know what? Um, you've heard the expression, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Why do we have to say things like that? Because we have a tendency to forget what the main thing was. We started about this, we became about that, and we forgot about this. I have an illustration in our church that uh, I, it's the most often repeated illustration in our church. I, I repeat this illustration like clockwork once a year. I have done everything I know how to drill this, this illustration into our people. Uh, and what I want to do is I want to read you something that I read to my church every year, every year. And I would ask that you would, would close your eyes and imagine the scene that I'm about to describe, but I don't know you well enough, and if I say close your eyes, you might fall asleep, and that hurt my feelings really bad. So, so while I read this, and I don't want to tell it to you, I just want to read it to you, just like I do with my church, because I don't know of anything that tells the story of the risk that we're up against better than this little parable. And so if you'll allow me, let me just, let me just read this. Just, just follow along. It's called the parable of the life-saving station. It's not a biblical par uh, parable. It's just a story somebody wrote. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little life-saving station, so it became quite famous. Well, some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and to give of their time and their money and their effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, new life-saving crews were trained, and, and thus the little life-saving station grew and grew. Now, some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped that they felt that a more comfortable place should, should be the provided as a first refuge for those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots and beds and put better furniture in the now newly enlarged building. 
Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. And they decorated it beautifully, and they furnished it exquisitely because they used it as, well, as sort of a, a club, a clubhouse. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. Yet the life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was a liturgical lifeboat, a lifeboat in the room where the club held its initiations. Well, about this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and many of them didn't look like the rest of the members. The beautiful new club was considerably messed up. Immediately, the property committee had a shower house built outside the club where the victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before being invited inside. Well, at the next meeting, there was a split in the club's membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Other members insisted on life-saving as their primary purpose, and they pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast a bit, which they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old one. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you were to visit that coast today, you would find a number of exclusive clubs all up and down the coastline. And then the last line is this. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. I just don't know a better story that talks about the drift of the purpose of which we were founded. The only thing Jesus ever started was this, and his purpose for us was crystal clear. And somehow we've forgotten. You know, we live in a country that has a, a sad heritage, really, of watching us drift away from the, the moorings and kind of the, the foundation, the anchor points of our Judeo-Christian ethic. And you're not, I'm not telling you what you don't know. In the video that you just saw at the very beginning of the service, it talks about, you know, all the universities that were founded in, in America. They were founded as Christian institutions. In fact, and then they mentioned Harvard. Let me read to you. I'm going to read to you the original mission statement of Harvard University, all right? Founded in 1636, this was why it was founded. Here it is. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and his studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. That's why Harvard was founded. When is the last time you thought of Harvard as a Christian institution? It's not just universities. It's just, it's just the way of, of the nature of things in our country. If I say YMCA, what does YMCA stand for? Young Men's Christian Association. When is the last time you've thought of the YMCA as being a Christian deal? It's just the nature of this stuff, folks. Jesus said, though, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church. And yet, it just seems like if we're not careful, we forget why we are. So here's what I want to do. I want to just, and I only have a few moments left, I want to just say to you three very simple statements. I want to just, to, to get a focus on remembering 
the, the, the reason that we gather, the reason this church is here, and why this church matters so much, I, I just want to suggest three things that you never forget, that you just never forget. And they're not profound, but they're profound in the simplicity of them. Okay, here they are. Number one, never forget who you are. Never forget who you are. If I say the name Kurt Douglas, a handful of people in this room will go, I know who that is. If I say Michael Douglas, his son, more would raise their hand. If you're young, you go, I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> Kirk Douglas, in his day, was one of the icons of Hollywood. He was a big movie star. And Kirk Douglas had um, kind of a, a thing that he liked to do. He liked to pick up hitchhikers and give them a ride. And he tells the story of one day he picked up a guy on the Malibu Highway who was thumbing a ride, a sailor who had just been discharged. He was thumbing a ride up north, and, uh, and so Kirk Douglas pulled over and offered him a ride. And the guy jumped in Kirk Douglas's car, threw his duffel bag in the back, so he took a glance at the driver and just did kind of a double take. And he's looking at him, and he's going, I, I know this guy. I know this guy. And he's racking his brain, and he steals another look. And Kirk is describing this. He steals another look. We don't want to stare. I know this guy. Who is this guy? And, he's, right, and he takes another look. And, and finally he said, he just lit up. He just lit up. He figured it out. And then he looked at me and said, do you have any idea who you are? <laughs> Isn't that a great question? Do you have any idea who you are? I got to tell you something. I, I got to tell you, uh, one of my biggest shortcomings, of which there are many, but let me tell you one of them. I am, I am recognitionally challenged. You know what that means? It means I'm really slow to recognize people. And, and when people, like, people say, oh, I'll never forget a face. I'm not that guy, okay? And like the North American last week, those are nightmare events for me because people come up and I just, I, don't, I just don't know. I, I'm really, really slow. But God has blessed me with a wife who is exactly the opposite. Lisa down here. Lisa is very quick to recognize people. And, and so what she's done is she's learned how to help me because she knows I'm clueless, and so what will happen is somebody will walk up, and she'll drop the name. So somebody will walk up, and, and she'll go, hey, Tom. And see, Tom is the chairman of our elders. And, um, or sometimes she'll walk up, and she'll say, hey, I'm Lisa, and it's really helpful. All right, you get the idea. Not quite that bad. But as bad as I am, she's good. But the problem is I'm recognitionally challenged, which means that usually when she tells me who somebody is, I don't see it. So I disagree with her because she's wrong, because the person doesn't look like the person she's saying that person is, because I'm recognitionally challenged. So let me give you the real life story. So we're in Target a number of years ago in Mesa, and we're, we're checking out, and I get the elbow, which is how she, she spotted somebody, gets the elbow, and uh, uh, she goes, two registers over, look. I look over, she goes, you know who that is? I'm recognitionally challenged, how could I know? I look over and I go, no, no idea. She goes, that's Danny Ainge. Now, you might not know the name Danny Ainge. Danny Ainge played for the Celtics, but at the time, he was the coach of the Phoenix Suns. And she goes, that's Danny Ainge. And I looked over, and I go, no, it's not. Because, <laughs> see, that's what a recognition challenged person would say when somebody, I go, no, it's not. She goes, yes, it is. I go, honey, it's not. She goes, I'm telling you, that's Danny Ainge. I said, honey, if that was Danny Ainge, he'd be much taller. It's not Danny Ainge. Well, our little daughter, Amy, was listening to this conversation, seven years old. She's going, there's an easy way to find this out. She walks over to the guy. We're, we're having this conversation, she, and then we discover she's like tugging on his shirt. And a little blonde head, blue-eyed little girl looks up to, and she goes, hey, mister. 
I got a question for you. And he looks down, he starts laughing. Yeah? Hey, are you Danny Ainge? She has no idea who Danny Ainge is, but she heard us talking about it. Are you Danny Ainge? And he says something like this. He says, well, that depends who's asking. <laughs> and she says, my name's Amy, but that's not important. What's important is who you are. Are you Danny Ainge? And, he, and she kind of melted his heart, I think. And, and he smiled at her. He says, yes, sweetie, I'm Danny Ainge. And she looked up and she goes, huh, my daddy doesn't think so. <laughs> to which, to which Danny Ainge said to my daughter, who's your daddy? I, I met Danny Ainge that day. He, he's not as tall as you might imagine. Anyway, um, I, I want to tell you who you are. Church, you're the bride of Christ. That's who you are. You are the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5 says this, Husband, love, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You are God's beloved. Don't ever forget that. If you forget that, you'll do something not worthy of being the bride of Christ. Don't ever forget who you are. Second thing, don't ever forget what you are. Don't ever forget what you are. And, and can I remind you of what you are? In the words of Bill Hybels, you are the hope of the world. That's, that's who you are. You are the hope of the world. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the world we're living in is a total mess. And it's getting worse in so many ways. The, the, it's like we're living in a moral cesspool these days. And the thing that's interesting is as you look at all the stuff that's going on and all the pain and the suffering, often what happens is, is, is people will say, I don't believe there's a God because of all the pain and suffering out there. So somehow we blame God for all the pain and suffering. The second thing that tends to come out of people's mouths is if there was a God, then God, why don't you do something? Do something. But I'll tell you what, I think if we could hear the voice of God, you know what I think God would say? I, I've done something. I, I, I put my church there. I put Parkview right where I put it because the people around that community so desperately need a church like Parkview. Um, the video that we saw at the very beginning was so good. Folks, there is simply no institution that makes a bigger difference to make the society we live in better than the church. It's historically been the one that provides the health care. It's the one who provides the care for the orphans. It's the one who's dealing with the sex trafficking industry. It, we could go on and on. Folks, here's what you are. You're God's plan A. There is no plan B. You are God's plan A. You are the hope of the world. That's what you are. You're God's beloved. That's who you are. You're the hope of the world. That's what you are. And the third thing you never want to forget and this is the one that matters the most to me. Never forget why you are. Never forget why you are. Yeah, have you ever wondered, why, why did God leave us here? Now, surely you have thought about this. Why is it that we have to stay here and deal with all the problems of the planet when we've got it figured out about God? Now, stay with me. Think this through. It would seem to me that if God 
is there, and he put us on this planet, and, and the goal was to figure out that there is a God, and most of you have done that, and to understand that he sent his son, and figure that out, and most of you have done that, and then you've surrendered your life to the control of his son, which a lot of you have done, then, like, haven't you, like, done all you were supposed to do? I mean, did you, like, you figured it out. You win the grand prize. So why don't you, when you win the grand prize, why doesn't God just rip you out of this messed up place and just take you home, bring you to heaven? And you go, oh, well, yeah, but, but um, there's some good things. I mean, I love my church. I love coming to church. Now, stop and think, because I want to tell you something. Everything you love about your church, and there's a lot to love, everything you love about your church, folks, you'll do better in heaven. Why don't we just go to heaven? No, what are you talking like, like, we just had this great worship. This was awesome. This great worship. You guys worship well. You know how to worship. You go, it doesn't get any better than this. Okay, come here. I don't want to hurt your feelings. But you guys are awesome. But with the angels of heaven and all the other choirs from all the other churches around the planet join in, this was really good, but it will be better you go, yeah, but you don't understand. We got Tim Harlow as a preacher. <laughs> yeah. And I'm telling you, when Tim opens up the Bible, I feel like I'm sitting at the feet of God. <laughs> Let me tell you what heaven's going to be like. You're going to sit at the feet of God. And if Tim gets up and says, I'm going to describe to you what it's like to be in the presence of God. If Tim gets up in heaven and starts to describe to you what it would be like to be in the presence of God, God would go, hey, boy, sit down. I got this one. I love the fellowship of our church. Awesome. Good. It's great. But it'll be better in heaven. Why are we still here? Folks, because there's only one thing you can do here that you can't do in heaven. You know what that is? Bring God's children home. That's why you're here. That's why you're here. This is the only thing you can't do in heaven. Everyone who is out when it's, the door's closed will stay out. And, and God is going, you know what? I need some people here now inviting them in. Let me read you a couple of passages of Scripture. The passion of God over this is so obvious in Scripture. First Timothy 2 says, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the will of God. All men not some, not a few, not a bunch, but not all men. That's what he wants. Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God wants everyone. So why hasn't he taken us? Because he's patient. Patient with what? Patient with your friends and your family and your coworkers. He loves them as much as he loves you. And for a lot of us, that's like a mind-blowing thought. He loves them as much as he loves you. And he wants them to be home as much as he wants you to be home. And he's left you here to help them find their way home. Luke 19.10 says, why Jesus came. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. How do you begin to understand how much it breaks the heart of God that his children aren't home? Let, let, me, let me just play a little game here. How many of you have ever lost your keys. You lost your keys. Raise your hand. Every hand should be up. You're in church. Don't lie in church. <laughs> Everybody's lost their keys. How many of you ever lost your wallet? Raise your hand. You're still in church. 
Which would you rather lose, your wallet or your keys? Your keys. Not, you know, why? Because your wallet has your identity. It has your finances. It, it, well, how many of you have ever lost a wedding ring? And I don't mean like on purpose, because I have to <laughs> clarify that. Which would you rather lose, a wedding ring or your wallet? A lot of people, now not everyone, would say, I'd rather lose my wallet. My wedding ring has so much significance. Don't raise your hand, because this will get really personal. Please don't raise your hand. How many, how many of you have ever lost a child? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> the pain of losing a child, and, and there's a couple of ways. You can lose a child through death, which is traumatically, uh, tra- traumatic. But you can also lose a child because they wandered off. They can wander off as an adult. They can wander off as a child. So just for the sake of making this point, I want you to think about a child wandering off, a child wandering off. I want you to understand something. When my kids were little, and just imagine right now, my kids were little. They're not. They're grown. But if my kids were little and one of them was missing, I promise you, I wouldn't be here. I love you guys, and I am so grateful to be here. But if my child was missing, I wouldn't be here. I would be looking for my child. And if I were here, I would plead with you all to help me find my child. How do you put in words the expression that a father feels towards a child that's missing? A number of years ago, I was with my son when he was uh, just a little boy, and we were out fishing in a a lake in Arizona, and um, I had a little 14-foot aluminum boat, and the wind was kicking up, and the waves were bouncing, and it was getting dicey, and I said to my son, Jeremy, Jeremy, we got to get off this lake. This is getting dangerous, and so so we kind of hurried to get off the lake, and and again, it just seemed like it was getting worse, and and this particular lake didn't have a boat ramp. It, It just had like dirt that you could go down and launch your boat, and so he was holding the boat. Um, as I went to get the truck, and I backed the truck down and bouncing because it's just really kind of rough and crazy, and I get the trailer into the water, and, and then I'm, I'm trying to get the boat onto the trailer, and the wind's blowing sideways, and so as soon as I can get it, it kind of blows over, and so I said to my son, Jeremy, can you, can, son, can you just like get over, he's just a little boy, can you get over here and push, and I know it's hard because the waves are hitting, but can you push against the, the waves, and, and see if you can put, and I'll pull, and I'll try to get it around, and so I'm getting soaked, and he's getting soaked, and so we're fighting this, the waves, and crazy. And he's got his little hands and his face is on the side of the boat, and I can see it. And I, and, and, but we're not getting it. So I said, Jeremy, can you go out a little farther, push for a little farther, get a little more leverage? So he works his way down, and, and, and as he's going, his head starts to go down because I can't see him anymore because it's getting deeper. And, and, then, and then as he goes, he goes, a little farther, a little farther. And all of a sudden, his hands disappear off the gunwale. And I go, hey, Jerry, you okay, right? Hey, bud, you okay? Nothing. And all of a sudden, the boat just blows over. And I realize he's under this boat somewhere. And I am telling you, time froze for me. How do you put into words what it feels like to lose a son? And he's gone right now. I don't know where I'm going to find him. And I'm telling you, with more passion than I live with every other day, I dove in. I'm looking for him. I'm reaching. I'm doing everything. I finally find him underneath and, and I pull him up, and he comes gasping up for air. I'll never forget. He said two words, thanks, Dad. He knew he was dying. Thanks, Dad. And he gasped. And I'm telling you, I grabbed my son, and I went to the back of my truck, and I sat there and just held him. What almost just happened? What almost just happened? And, man, I just, uh, my heart was racing. His heart was pounding. We sat there, and we just kind of caught our breath, and I just held on to him. How do you put into words what it feels like to lose a son? And as soon as I got my composure, I said something to him that I know we've never forgotten. I said, hey, son, this stays between us guys, right? 
There is no need to tell your mom about what just happened. It ain't no good going to come out of that. See, Jesus told the story of a, a, a shepherd that had 99 and 100 sheep, and 99 were safe and one wandered off. And what did he say he did? The shepherd goes to look. And a woman had 10 coins, and one shepherd goes to look. The, the woman goes to look. Uh, a man had two sons. You, you can't make a son come home, but you can help a son come home. So I want to close, and I want to tell you this story. Um, again, a true story. This happened about seven or eight years ago. On, it happened on a Friday night. I was speaking somewhere. My wife also has a ministry. She was not in town. And so I'd asked my daughter, who was 21 at the time, if she would come and pick me up at the airport. And so on a Friday night, about, I don't know, 1030, she picks me up. She takes me home. And I go into an empty house. My kids are gone. And I go into an empty house, and um, I, I greet my dog. And, and so I, I'm, I'm greeting my dog, and my dog's getting all, you know, kind of, you know, we're just having a great time. My dog's name is Cassie. We're just having a great time. About three minutes after my daughter drops me off, she's going back to be with her roommates in her apartment. She calls me and she says, hey, dad, are you alone? <laughs> what? Are you alone? Yeah. It's me and the dog. And she says, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I need you to come to the front door alone. Leave the dog behind. How many of you think this is a weird call? This is a weird call. I go, what's up? She goes, just meet me on the front porch. Hurry. So I leave my dog behind, and I go on the front porch, and, and standing on the front porch is my daughter. Turn the light on, I can see she's holding something, and I go, what is it? She goes, Dad, it's a dog. Found it on the side of the road. I think it's been hit by a car. And my daughter's just, you know, heart's huge. Now, I'm going to confess something to you. I was incredibly tired. I did not want to mess with this dog. I did not want to be inconvenienced. I did not want to take the time. I did not care about this dog. And uh, she goes, Dad, seriously, I think it's been hit by a car. I need to describe this dog to you. Number one, it smelled horrible. It was covered in mud and muck. It smelled, it looked horrible, it smelled horrible. In all honesty, if I can be real candid with you, it was the ugliest dog I think I'd ever seen in my life. I don't say that to excuse myself, I'm just telling you, it just was. It was the ugliest dog. And I looked at this dog, and I looked it over, and I said, honey, that is not a dog that was hit by a car. That was the dog that was born looking like it was hit by a car. <laughs> that's an ugly dog. And she says, Dad, what are we going to do with it? Did anyone catch the word in that sentence that was like bizarre? We, we, we ain't no we going on here. We ain't doing anything. And she says, Dad, what, what should I do with it? And I said, I'd go put it back and drive away. Act like you never saw it. And, and she goes, Dad, I can't do that. And she couldn't. And she'll, she said, can I, can I keep it here tonight? What's the answer to that one? I don't want to be inconvenienced. No. She goes, then I can I get some dog food and some dog shampoo? Yes, you can. Go get it. So she went and got it. Next morning, she uh, shows up with her roommates, her college roommates, and uh, these girls show up on the front porch, and they've got this dog, and they have scrubbed it. This must have spent hours scrubbing this dog up. And the dog was clean and didn't smell bad anymore. It was still the ugliest dog I'd ever seen. Now, I need to be, now, I'm going to tell you what this was, okay? Because you don't, don't write me, okay? Because these are not ugly dogs. But this particular dog, was a, it was a pug dog. Okay, pug dogs are not bad. Don't write me. You do, you do need to put a collar on a pug dog so you know which end you're looking at. But, but, uh, but you know, they're, they're great dogs. Okay, but, but this, particular, this particular pug dog, it was, was missing an eye. And the other eye had a cataract over it. 
and I was pretty sure the dog was blind then. But it was running around my front porch. It was kind of a cute little personality of this little dog. And, 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 so, and, and so she, she said, um, we're going we're gonna to go down to the pound and, 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 and drop, drop the dog off. And I said, that'd be good. That'd be good. And so she goes down to the pound. I get a phone call from my daughter at the pound. She says, hey, dad, I'm at the pound. And apparently the pound doesn't take dogs on Saturday. I'm pretty sure the pound made that policy that very Saturday morning. <laughs> and I said, okay, uh, now what are you going to do? Well, they said, well, what we ought to do is we ought to go down to PetSmart and see if there's a chip in this dog. <laughs> there's not going to be a chip in that dog. No one's going to pay to put a chip in that dog. And she says, dad, you don't know that. I go, okay. She calls me from PetSmart. Dad, there's no chip in this dog. I'm kidding. Now what are you going to do? Well, the people at PetSmart said we should take it and put it on a leash and walk it up and down the neighborhood where we found it. Somebody will recognize us and say, that's my dog. Okay, so they trolled this dog up and down our neighborhood for about two hours. Strangest thing, no one claimed the dog. <laughs> Did I mention this was an ugly dog? So um, she ends up on the front porch with her girlfriends, and I, I'm looking at her and I go, what are you going to do? And she goes, I don't know. And then with this fierce determination, she just goes... Let's go. She gets her girlfriend. She gets in the car. And she, I go, where are you going? She goes, I'm going to go find the owner of this dog. And I'm like, give up on it. She goes, no, I'm going to find it. Okay, I promise you this is what happened. About an hour later, I get another phone call from her. She says, Dad, you will not believe what I'm looking at. What are you looking at? I am looking at a wanted poster of a one-eyed pug dog. <laughs> okay, now what are the odds of this, right? I go, you're kidding. She goes, nope, I think it's our dog. And uh, there's a phone number here, and I'm going to call it. And I go, you be careful. Anybody who don't a dog like that's a dangerous person. You be careful. And so she calls this number. She describes to the dog, and apparently it sounds like their dog. And, and so the guy said, listen, can I come get you? No, no, I'll bring it over with my girlfriends. We'll show up. We'll bring your dog. Give me the address. And, and, and so she calls me. She says, dad, we're going over. I go, seriously, be careful. And so this is how she described it. She pulled up in front of the house, and, and there were three little blonde-headed girls just in ascending order. And, and then there was the father. And they were all standing out in the front of, the, the front of their house. They were dying of anticipation. And, and when they drove up, they opened the door, and they let the dog out. And the dog ran to the girls, and everyone in the front yard going ballistic. They were just having a party. They are going, it's him, it's him, he's home. Tally's home. The dog had a name. <laughs> Go figure. Tally, short for Metallica. Anyway. Um, so they're all having this big old celebration, a party on the front you know, lawn, and the guy starts crying, and he says, i got to call my wife. She's traveling. Gets his wife. He's home. He's home. And the wife's sobbing on the phone. He's home. I promise you, he's home. He's home. And, and, and then and this girl brought him, and, and then he, she said, i got to talk to the girl. And, and she's like talking to my daughter. She says, you have no idea. You have no idea. This little dog has been in this family since before those little girls were born. You have no idea how much this dog means to us. This dog got out about two weeks ago. We have looked everywhere. We have posted everything everywhere. We, we last Wednesday night had a service because we basically had to say goodbye to our dog. And so we gathered and we just said, thank you God for the dog, but it's gone. And we just said our goodbyes. And now you show up and you brought our dog home. You have no idea. And, and then she said that she said, I promise you, my husband's going to give you an incredible reward. And my daughter said, no, no, no. This right here. It's as good of a reward as I could ever imagine. This is all I want. Thank you, but no thank you. And besides, when I get home, 
and I tell my dad, that's going to be priceless. Why am I telling you that story? Let me close. Because I am the one-eyed pug dog. Now, that story was true, and I'm not that pug dog. But I'm telling you, when, when I was a high school student, I was a mess, and I was in a ditch, and I was covered in muck, and I smelled really bad. And you would have every reason to walk by me, and it would be fully justified. But I'm here today because I had some friends who brought me home. And you might be in this crowd today, and you might be feeling like nobody cares, and, and nobody's looking for you. And I'm here to tell you God wants you home. And there's a party waiting to break out on your behalf when you come home. And the second thing to tell you is, church, don't ever forget why you're here. I know who you are. You're the bride of Christ. And I know what you are. You're the hope of the world. But why you're here is to bring people home to their father. That's why you're here. Let me pray for you. So, Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for the mission that they're so serious about getting accomplished. God, bless them. Help them keep on, keep on purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.